Hey guys, thanks for joining for the Spin Zone. I'm happy today to have some of the guys from the band Luxury on here, a band that came out on Tooth and Nail back in the mid '90s. Uh, we actually, my brother and I, we talk about this a little bit in the episode. Went and saw them in Polly's Island, but we're not here today to talk about music. We're here to talk about Eastern Orthodoxy, as three of the band members are now priests in Eastern Orthodox. Uh, religion. So it is a very interesting conversation as I, going into this interview, had zero knowledge whatsoever of Eastern Orthodoxy, whereas my brother, on the other hand, has been studying it pretty hardcore, I think is actually uh, finding uh, a, a good bit of common ground with its teachings. Uh, but we talk about Eastern Orthodoxy throughout this episode. I will go ahead and warn you that I took my slow and easy time. I really wanted to get the thorough explanation. And so at the beginning, we spend a lot of time on the origins of Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, whereas later in the episode, we get more into uh, doctrines such as the rapture and sin and demons and uh, the afterlife and those sorts of things things. But welcome, these guys, to the Spin Zone, uh, Matt and Father Chris. And at the end of this episode, we do treat you to a, uh, I would say, probably my favorite song by Luxury. So hope you enjoy that as well. All right. Well, we are here with Matt and Father Chris. Both of you guys are, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, were y'all both in the band Luxury back in the day? Are and still are. Still are. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Yeah, I was emailing back and forth with, with Matt uh, earlier and reminiscing on a show that was in Polly's Island. And uh, so I'm from Charleston. That's about a hour and a half drive. And I'm almost certain, because uh, you asked me uh, a particular band that either y'all were opening up for or they were opening up for you. I'm almost certain it was you guys in the prayer chain. Does that ring a bell? Would that have? I wasn't in the band in those days, so Chris okay. could answer. Yeah, that. yeah, that was uh, when we did the tour with Prayer Chain. We played yeah. Holly's Island, yeah. And actually, and actually, very recently, Father James and I went back. We were at Polly's Island for a clergy retreat. Yeah, and we went to that church. Oh my! We, dro- we drove past it. We're like, isn't this the place where we played? That is so crazy. Yeah, I- I'll never forget because I I grew up in a very uh, legalistic culture, and I'll never forget like between sets they were playing uh, the movie Forrest Gump on a big screen, and I was just like, <laughs> I can't believe all this cussing at a at a youth event, you know, because it was at a church and uh, seemed yeah. to be geared towards youth groups and all that. But um, yeah, oh, it's crazy. It's an honor to talk to you guys because I've been listening to y'all since since the very beginning. And what's interesting is um, my brother who helps me out with this show. He's a school teacher, so he couldn't he couldn't make it work uh, getting on here. But him and I both consider ourselves Christian. Um, but he has recently been studying uh, Eastern Orthodox and you know, when, when he dives into something, he dives into it. And I mean, so he's probably already read like four or five books and, uh, you know, so him and I are on way different paths. And, uh, so one of the purposes of getting you guys on the show is, is to educate myself, to educate my brother who will edit the, uh, episode gleefully and enjoy listening to every word and then educate our audience. So let me just 
for a framework, let me take a, a stab at it, and I'm going to assume that I'm probably wrong. But when we're, when we're talking Eastern Orthodoxy, it's not Catholicism, it's not Protestantism, um, but it is Christian. Does it fall under Christian? And are, are, are those three on like, are, are those similar categories? Uh, yes, it is Christian. Um, <laughs> you know, it's basically... You're laughing at me right now. I feel, <laughs> I feel your laughter. Well, it's funny because uh, I get asked these questions all the time because yeah. when I walk around, I'm, I'm not in it now, but I, I wear a cassock with a big, huge pectoral cross and I'll be in line at Starbucks or something and somebody will say, oh, you know, do you mind if I ask you, you know, what are you? Right. And then I tell them Eastern Orthodox priests and they're like, oh, are you all Christians? Right. I, I look at my cross. I'm like, well, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. totally. Yeah. And that, that's my assumption. So are, are those three, like, are those, are those appropriate categories? Like if you're not Catholic, not a Protestant, you could be in Eastern Eastern Orthodoxy. Are there? Are we? Yeah, those are you know the three main okay. groups families. of families of Christianity. Yeah, gotcha. Um, gotcha. If when you talk about if when you talk about denominations, usually that's where you start getting into like specific Protestant kind of things. Protestants right. often will say, "Oh, well, Catholicism and Orthodoxy are just two different denominations," and I think that both Catholics and uh, and Orthodox would dispute that. Gotcha. And uh, and Orthodox in particular would just say that that um, Protestants are merely sort of crypto papists, like that they're because uh, Protestants come. Protestants are Protestantism is derived from the Western Roman Catholic tradition, right? That that Orthodox are likely to see Catholics and Protestants as sort of two sides of the same coin. Gotcha. Gotcha. So they, they, I don't think that they would see themselves as being like, like one of three options and who cares? Right. I think that, I mean, not that anybody does really, but, but um, they would see themselves as being logically anterior. That is uh, uh, prior to, uh, to either Roman Catholicism. Yeah. Strictly yeah that or makes sense. Protestantism. And, and probably the, you know, the three sentence answer that I give when somebody just has no concept of, you know, what is the Orthodox Church? Because I certainly, I was raised evangelical. Right. So growing up, I, only As knew, I was too, yeah. Yeah, I only knew of Catholicism and Protestantism. But here's this whole third family of Christianity, which is actually the second largest body in Christendom. Wow. Second to? To Catholicism. Okay. Um, and so you find in, in the ancient Eastern Roman or the Roman Empire, you know, basically the Eastern half is what became, you know, part of the Byzantine Empire. You know, there was a second capital, they moved, you know, to Constantinople. And basically that became, you know, kind of where the Eastern Christian faith flourished. Yeah. And then there was the schism in 1054, where the East and West split, the West becoming what is now known as the the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, You know, the rest of the church became coming what is now known as the Eastern Christian communion of churches. That's so interesting. So so I would still consider myself like, I don't, I don't feel a whole lot like uh, most evangelicals, but I, I'm still at an evangelical church and um, it's 
just been so interesting to to begin to realize just how narrow of a view, uh, especially when I was very close-minded to, uh, I mean, you know, I, it, you guys probably can relate to this. I mean, growing up evangelical, I mean, you thought of Catholics as non-Christians. I mean, you know, they're, they're, oh, not, yeah. they're not even Christian. So, you know, especially back in the day, <clears throat> realize, you know, as I reflect on those times, it's like, that is such a narrow, tiny little view. And there's like real people with sincere, genuine desire to seek the same God that I want to seek and are coming up with, you know, different revelation, different, God forbid me to say different truths, but just a, a, a different paradigm. And I was taught to see everything outside of my little box as bad and unhealthy and run away from. So I've got plenty of questions, but why don't you guys kind of give a, a snapshot of Eastern Orthodoxy and, and, um, and am I even saying that right? <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. um, you know, what makes it unique to Catholicism and Protestantism? Hmm. Chris, can I, can I take a stab at the beginning of it? And you can, yeah, sure. you're going to have, you're, I, I want to make myself useful in some kind of way. And you're going to get more questions that, since you're the priest, but I, I can handle a little bit of the history if you're willing. Yeah, that's fine. So, um, so the, the history of, of orthodoxy, like in one sense, absolutely dates back to Christ and his apostles. Yeah. And so what happens in the very earliest days of the church, which is like, you see this in scripture itself, is that there's a persecution uh, that's taking place under people like Nero. And the first great persecution was under this guy, Nero. Um, and, uh, and there are extant, uh, letters that exist from, from th- that period and, and after it in the, the second century and, and so on of, I mean, really interesting letters of like one, like Roman official writing to another Roman official saying, Hey, what's our stance on the Christians these days? Yeah. What we ordinarily do is beat the hell out of them and, and send them packing if they won't recant their belief that Christ is risen. Right. And which like the resurrection was like very foundationally important in terms of, of a, as a confession of faith among right. the earliest Christians. So, um, and it's like, are we still killing them or what are we doing? But like, what was clear was that like, it was that Christians were personae non grata in the, in the Roman empire at that point. What did you just so, say? persona non grata i said persona non grata which is not really correct it's persona non gratiae uh but it's it's latin which means you just think i know latin man you're gonna throw latin sorry dude sorry (laughs) that's one that sort of made its way over i think he He taught he, he taught latin by the way I did, but I would, I would, I think I might have said that otherwise. So, persona non grata, a person who is not welcome. Gotcha. Right. So, the early Christians were that, like they were in that culture. They were very much outsiders, and um, and and was a multicultural faith as well. That's one interesting thing that uh, I've learned about, in particular, when you know, in Antioch, that was where they first started calling them Christians. Right. And, 
so Antioch is in Asia Minor. And what was distinctive about Antioch, or not distinctive, it was fairly typical, I think, at the time, is that it was a very syncretistic context. So, and syncretism, for our listeners, is the, the cultural um, uh, context wherein you will have multiple uh, faiths being practiced and a, pres- a general presumption that not one of them is any better than the other. That so syncretism is like multiple faiths. Basically, it's America is what it, I mean. It's like typical American sort of idea. Everybody can have their own beliefs. Everybody can be right about it, whatever. And that was sort of a typical concept because your your faith was predicated uh, uh, upon your ethnicity, you know, where you're from. It, were, it was tribal gods. And if you believed in the concept of polytheism and tribal gods, then there's no reason to think that like, sure, why would anybody worship our God? They've got their God, we've got our gods, and there's no reason that there should be any conflict in that. So that was what was going on in Antioch, for example. And my understanding is that they actually had to, that even though you had sort of this sort of consensus view of syncretism, you still had a situation where different ethnicities were constantly at each other's throats. Yeah. And so you had, they had to build these walls in between, I mean, you think about like in New York or some such place where you've got Little Italy and you've got Chinatown next door to that and whatever. Think that, but with actual walls in between. Gotcha. Well, you had, when these people became Christians who may have been from one tribe or another, like they had to like come up with a name for them that was something other than their ethnicity because these were people who quite literally were crossing walls to interact with one another. Right. And so that's why they had to come up with this word Christian in the first place. All of which is sort of, we're getting like a little bit far afield. But the point is that after, after the persecutions sort of came to an end yeah. with the edict of toleration in 313, is that right, Chris? Yeah. Thereabouts, um, that all of a sudden you have this context where the primary concern is not whether or not you're going to stay alive like all of a sudden it's legal to be a Christian now. And like, we can actually start thinking about things other than how to survive. And, and um, you know, in like maybe churches, these home churches that were very underground, right. Where you didn't necessarily want to be known, but all of a sudden they could start thinking about a few things. And one of those is the question of Canon. That is scripture. Another is the question of, of, um, of, councils and then creed this conveniently all has uh c's um and real quick let me let me, yeah. let me interrupt real quick though so those christians at the time were they also cool with live and let live as far as what you believed in with with the different gods or or were they convinced now nope, we've seen the risen lord those days yeah, yeah, yeah no they were totally convinced that they had seen the risen that either they or their teachers had seen the risen lord and and the implications of that, by the way, like, so if you have, so the gospels, for example, are written either by eyewitnesses or by the, the, the uh, students of eyewitnesses right. of the resurrection. And so if these guys are going around and claiming that Jesus rose from the dead bodily, uh, and uh, in a culture that was not really susceptible to that kind of, of on one hand, uh, um, a, a very, 
what do you call it? What would you call it? I don't want to say an intolerant viewpoint, but like a very narrow sort of point of view that no, this happened and Jesus is the way uh, on one hand. And then on the other hand, like that's going to be irritating to one group of people. Right. And the idea that, well, we don't need to get into that. But the point is that yes, they, they, those who claimed it, not only were claiming it, but they also were dying for that right. belief, right. right? And so that gives us a historical problem of like, what do we make of this? Like, how do we understand what was going on with these people? Because it almost seems like it really happened. Yeah, You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it almost seems like it really happened. Like, if these guys, like, on one hand, you could say, well, people die for their beliefs all the time. Yes, they do, but they don't die for things that they know are false. And the earliest, like, disciples, if it was not true that Jesus they would you know, have known. actually resurrected. They were the ones that would know. They were the ones right. that actually claimed to have seen it themselves. As soon as wow, like, this really ha- this this really happened, you had you had uh, like in Nero's persecution, he would he would uh, impale Christians on stakes and then and dip them in pitch uh, like tar and uh, or put it on them and set them on fire, and that would provide. Um, uh, light for the parties that he would hold at his palace and you would have uh, Christians like their heads uh, drilled open and molten lead poured into their skulls um, uh, and like which is like how do you even think of that like just really pretty intense stuff and I would say that if you were one of those people who claims to have seen the risen Lord uh, but really happened because y'all had a little scheme going or whatever is right. to be the idea. Then, like, I think it's about the time that they brandish right. the, the drill. <laughs> that you say, all right, this just I'm got out. real. <laughs> right, exactly. Because nobody, like, people don't die for something they know is not You know true. what? You're going to open my skull. I'm going to recant. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. And some people recanted for less than that, but but um, but there are very many who did not. Many yeah. of the, like, the the guys that we know their names – and very many more beyond were were really important martyrs, and it was precisely like that was the crux of it. This the the teaching of the resurrection and the teaching of the supremacy of Christ as Lord were like really critical um, teachings of the of the early church. And um, uh, so so skipping ahead, yes, these were people who were like very convinced of the truth of this, in part because. You know, it was Tertullian, was it Tertullian, who said that, um, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the mm. church. And what they saw was not that... I get um, chills. Not that, oh, well, yes. And, and it's not that, um, that seeing people die publicly, which is what it was, like they would die publicly, you would think that that would turn people off. But, but they would talk about how well these Christians died. Like they would die singing hymns to Christ, Gosh. you know, being mauled by, you know, animals or whatever. There was um, Ignatius of Antioch, I think, I think that's who it was, who wrote a letter. He was in, in prison in Rome. Is it, was it Ignatius? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So he was in prison in Rome and wrote these letters out of prison. And, uh, and Chris is just here to keep Matt straight. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. Chris is going to get everything later. And he's not even the Orthodox one, but I'm not even the Orthodox guy. He's giving great answers. (laughs) uh, So, well, yeah, correct me when I'm wrong, but, um, but he wrote this really, really compelling letter that, um, so he had understood that they were going to 
that they, they were going to try to bust him out of jail or something like that. And, and he said, look, don't do that. If I die, well, what he said, what he says is if I live, then I will just be one more word of man. But if I die, I will be, I will become the very word of God. And he says, um, I am God's wheat to be ground by the teeth of beasts. Um, so that I might become the living bread of Christ. Right? Intense. Isn't it? Like that's, that's beyond. And then we talk about how we're persecuted, you know, right. Oh yeah. Or whatever. So I can't believe they, they trashed my Jesus thing on Facebook, man. The (laughs) person I know persecuted. Unreal dude. (laughs) So uh, anyway, once you get up to like the third or the fourth century rather, which bear in mind, like people want to say, well, well, people like to pretend like that's a lot further out than it really is. Fourth century, remember, like it's early 300s, which after all is, is um, so the, the Gospels were written in the late first century. So in sort of between probably 70 and 90. Yeah. Uh, AD or CE, depending on your angle. And you didn't and, have a closed uh, canon at that point. Right, you did not have a closed canon. So it was the traditions that had been handed down to people. Though I will say that by by about 150 you start to see letters from bishop to bishop saying, "Hey, by the way, what are the what do y'all consider to be authoritative? What are your what are the the things?" And it was very early that like they were really like pretty much what we see today. There were a couple of exceptions. Like, is it going to be James? Is it going to be, you know, the book of Revelation? And there was like one or two other books that were vying for, for position. But in general, like it was very close to what we have uh, today. So, um, so anyway, once the, um, uh, once it's now legal to be a, a Christian and they have other things that they can pay attention to other than just staying alive, they're able to focus more and more on sort of, okay, what defines us as Christians? Yeah. And because also you're, you're not, you're not only seeing, okay, what, let's think about this. You're also seeing people who are thinking about it in very different kind of ways. And there are a number of heresies that pop up like the Gnostic heresies and Arianism and, and, um, uh, and uh, you know a lot of like crypto gnostic sort of beliefs which a lot of these that paul even addressed right and is sort of the gnostics weren't really they weren't really he was more interested in like the judaizers and that kind of thing but which was like a that was a heresy there were definitely heresies from the beginning but some of like the gnostic kind of stuff um is which has sort of become most popular with things like the da vinci code and which sort of deals with some of that stuff uh poorly i think but um uh but they they believe for example that uh that the flesh is either evil on one hand or it's irrelevant on the other hand but whatever it is it's not something that was created by by god who is who is purely spiritual and wants us to be purely spiritual but instead by what they call the demiurge and that our that our role as good Gnostics is that is that we would avoid everything, everything fleshly or, or lavish in everything fleshly. It's a, there were two different sort of perspectives because either it's evil. And so you want to stay away from it or it's irrelevant. So who cares what you do? Yeah. If you have sex with the temple prostitutes, that's fine. 
um, I say temple prostitutes, meaning like in Corinth or someplace like that, yeah. where that was an issue very early on. But um, uh, anyway, so the, the, those who um, were resisting some of these heretical teachings were about, okay, look, like, how do we do this? How do we establish what is the truth? And, uh, and how do we arrange ourselves? And so they look back at, at the, the precedent that had been given, which was in the book of Acts. There was a council, uh, the Council of Jerusalem, where they were trying to determine, like, what is, what is the Jewish perspective, like Jewish Christian perspective on Gentiles? Like, how do we comport ourselves with these Gentiles who are coming into the faith? Like, yeah. do they need to be circumcised? All of that stuff that we see in, in there was a dispute and some stuff between like Paul and Peter and all of that jazz. So, uh, so they look back at, at uh, the uh, uh, council of Jerusalem and they say, okay, evidently what we do as a church is we, we decide things in a, on a conciliar basis that is in council with one another. And so, okay, well then who, what, what uh, determines the authoritative body that is deciding these things? And they said, well, it needs to be uh, these, these patriarchates, so-called, like, which were, there were five patriarchates. And um, what was distinguishing about them is that they were, or what, was, what distinguished the councils that met was that they were Catholic in the sense of being universal. Yeah. And, and they were universal because each of these five patriarchates were present. That is uh, Jerusalem, Antioch, uh, Alexandria, Constantinople, and Rome. Uh, and so if those five patriarchates were present, then it was reckoned to be universal because they represented different cultures. It was African, it was European, it was Asian, um, and different, I mean, it was Greek and, and Latin, but, uh, um, uh, but also it was... Um, apostolic because each of those each of those churches had in principle been founded by one of the apostles yeah so it had the advantage of being of being ancient even from their perspective like that it went back it, it was it was primitive in the sense of being of the primacy of the early fathers and the traditions that they had or the disciples and the traditions that they had passed on to to their disciples and so forth. Um, and um, uh, so it was Catholic, it was apostolic, and therefore it could contain, it had authority. And yeah. so, so as Christians, I think, uh, Christians believe that that, uh, that was also in turn guided by the Holy Spirit and what have you. And so they met in council and the first council was in 325, it was the Council of Nicaea, um, which was, uh, I believe south, just south of, of Constantinople, which was originally a fishing village called uh, Byzantium. Uh, and, but that's where, as Chris mentioned earlier, that's where um, the second, the Eastern capital of Rome was established. They sort of had a two, two capital system there. You had Rome and then you had uh, Byzantium then called Constantinople after Constantine. So you had these councils that met and established it really important things such as the creed, yeah. right? The Nicene creed was established in 325. And it was something that was like some of the creeds that had happened before it, like the apostles creed, which is in the, I think like 180 or thereabouts that, um, 
it was, I think from the beginning was reckoned to be a baptismal uh, creed and it ha- it takes a Trinitarian form. Each clause or set of parts of it um, is directed toward the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then something about the church. And the idea was that you were a Christian if you could utter th- that creed without giggling or crossing your fingers, yeah. and then you would be baptized, and you would receive entry into the church uh, because of that. And that's, from my perspective, that's usually where I fall in terms of like, like how, how do you define whether or not a, another person is a Christian? And for the most part, it's not my business what somebody else is, but if, um, if somebody's trying to determine whether another person should receive the Eucharist, receive communion, then their, their status as a Christian, I think, becomes relevant. And, and that's why in the Orthodox Church, and many other churches that the creed is uttered before communion. It's a reminder of your entry into the faith and, and so on. Um, in any event, so you had councils, you had creeds or a creed uh, emerge from that. And then you had canon emerging from that uh, years later as well. Uh, and the canon was, it was not that they created a book, yeah. but that they more or less ratified what had been held as tradition for 200 years, 300 years prior to that anyway. It was them saying, yes, we recognize this as being the truth. Canon simply is the Greek word, which means read, like a long read that you would find growing in the water. Yeah. And that was what they used as a measuring stick. So the question is, do these books measure up to the traditions that we've been granted? And they determined that in their wisdom and through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and what have you, that yes, that those were um, uh, were so-called canonical and therefore authoritative. Um, Imperfect. There wasn't as much. There wasn't as much discussion about perfection and infallibility. That may be a more modern sort of notion. I think that if you had asked them, maybe you would have gotten different answers. Yeah. But authoritative, like authoritative. I think, is probably the best way of of understanding it. Authoritative. Uh, for any sort of thing you would need to know about about theology, that it's authoritative on those grounds. Not that every single issue that could ever be addressed would be discovered in Scripture, right? But that 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 would contain the building blocks that you would be able to discern other spiritual truths from it. Uh, so when so, do the Catholics and Protestants get out of town? So so Chris will follow up and will talk about about canon and the schism. At yeah. this point, starting now, right, Chris? Right, exactly. Um, the <laughs> one thing. Job, sorry for being so chatty. That's great. He's like a teacher or something. Almost <laughs> formerly. Uh, I guess the one thing I would say first about um, canon is the way that the the church at that time understood it. Uh, the word canon wasn't used as a a term for a selection of books, I think until like the 18th century, the idea was that Christ is the canon. Christ is the rule of faith. And so the church was just gathering to look at the, this collection of books and which one of these books correctly bore witness to Christ as canon, Christ as the rule of faith. Yeah. So we can speak of canonical scripture because it rightly communicates the fullness of the gospel of what was being passed on through holy tradition 
from the apostles through that age of the apostolic era uh, to the time of the beginning of the councils. Um, so, you know, Christ is the rule of faith, not a book. Yeah. Um, so, but, you know, as things developed, you know, Matt mentioned the, the five patriarchates. Um, you know, basically, there was a growing uh, tension between the Latin-speaking West and the Greek-speaking East. You know, both issues over primacy, um, there began to be kind of a, a little difference of opinion about kind of how spirituality is lived out. Um, you know, there was also this, the geographic difference and the language barrier. So there began to be, you know, some tension between, you know, basically Rome and, you know, the other uh, four patriarchates. And those four patriarchates were, you know, they were establishing other churches and they were right. sending missionaries out. So they kind of represented the fullness of the church in the East. So that all came to a head um, in 1054 when some legates from Rome were set to Constantinople and in the middle of the, the Sunday morning divine liturgy, they put a bull of excommunication down on the altar. Um, and then Constantinople, you know, basically responded with, well, you can't excommunicate us. You know, we don't recognize this excommunication. So in a sense, they reciprocated. Um, but there was, you know, a few issues about primacy. Um, there was a general rule in that first millennia of, you know, bishops do not interfere in an area of another bishop. The bishop is the shepherd over his flock. And so there were some matters where, you know, at least in the East, they felt like that, uh, the bishop in Rome was exerting a little too much power into areas that he didn't have jurisdiction, basically. Um, also in the West, there was an addition to the creed. Uh, you know, Matt mentioned these councils. So anytime a creed was decided on, it seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then the creed would be declared. Well, for one bishop, or I think it was like a, a king in Spain or something that added... Yeah, Spain. Yeah, Spain and the Son, and talking about the Holy Spirit. Um, so that's called the filioque uh, clause, and that was added to the creed in the West. And, and to, to be to be clear, the idea there is that is that um, in that part of the creed that says we believe in the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father. Right. Uh, that's how it originally was rendered, and the the this in Spain they began to say uh, we believe. Uh, in the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And that's that filioque, that's Latin for and the Son. And the Son. It's like a double so, procession of the Holy right, Spirit. Right, right, yeah. And which seems like a very, like, what does procession mean? And like, it's a very specific theological point, which the, the Orthodox would say, no, like scripture says that the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit proceeds from, like I will send a Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father. That's in Jesus's, words so sent by son but proceeding from the father and it seems like a fine theological distinction but i in my understanding what was more at issue was like because it was first like these spaniards that were saying it but then the the bishop of of rome who we may as well go ahead and unveil as the pope because they started calling him papa and ultimately became known as that was is their name for the bishop of rome so uh, uh, he gave his seal, stamp of approval on that rendering. And so 
the problem is that you have this one, uh, this one patriarchate who is taking it upon himself to make a change to the creed, which was arrived at on a conciliar basis. Yeah, by the whole church. So what's this one guy doing making that change where without counsel, right? Without, it would be like in, in America, if somebody, if, if a judge decided to change a law, right. just according to his own whim, without going through the process. So right. anyway, so it was, it was, so some people say, well, the, the great schism in 1054 was just about this one Latin word, filioque, but it really was about primacy. Yeah. Authority, kind of a larger and issue. So forth. Yeah. yeah. And so basically at the, at the schism, I mean, in a sense, it was one patriarchate rejecting, in a sense, the four others. And so the four others are kind of what became as, as the church continued to grow in the East, the Eastern Orthodox communion of churches, which today is a federation of, you know, like 15, what we call self-governing churches that choose to be in communion with one another. Whereas so you guys were rejected. Like, I mean, historically, so that's what happened is, is basically the other four were pretty much moved. No, 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 no. It was the other way around. around. So if you, if you picture it on your hand, yeah. If you picture on your hand, these four are the Eastern Greek speaking uh, country or I'm sorry, patriarchates. And this guy over here, this thumb for our listeners is Rome. And that's the Latin-speaking Western European, the only European patriarchate. And so uh, it's basically Europe saying, we know better than y'all. And so the, th- these four saying, okay, have it your way, in effect. Uh, and so Ro- the way that, that Roman Catholic history wants to portray it is that the Eastern Orthodox split off from, from Rome but as a non-Orthodox nor Catholic myself, that's not what it looks like to me. Right. <laughs> to me, it looks kind of different from that. So, yeah. yeah, from the Eastern perspective, you know, we would feel like it was Rome who, you know, kind of strayed or changed from the older apostolic tradition. Yeah. Right. And you don't want to look at it as a fork in the road. You want to look at it as like a branch that emerged from this one continual tradition, I think. Or so that's, you, the, I mean, that's certainly the Orthodox. Yeah. Do you guys see, so I guess this would be more for Father Chris. Do you, you guys see Catholics and Protestants as brothers and sisters in Christ? No, they're all going to hell. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, kind of what I appreciate about uh, Orthodoxy is that, um, you know, a term, uh, a phrase we often use is that, you know, we can say where the church is, but we can't say where it isn't. It's not for us to judge kind of where other people are. You yeah. know, we, we are within the tradition. We are shaped and formed by the tradition. We stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before. Um, this is why the Orthodox Church puts a lot of emphasis on that age of the ecumenical councils from the fourth century uh, through the seventh century, because these are the normative when the church was one. Um, And so we could have a theological discussion and talk about from our perspective of where we feel like different churches have strayed strayed from that tradition. Yeah. Um, 
But if they show if they if they show Forrest Gump, though, they're out. <laughs> right, that much we do know. Yeah, that church is <laughs> bullshit, man. <laughs> um, but I guess to kind of just finish your initial question, um, too. So basically, in the West, after that split, you know, you had the Latin-speaking West, and then you had kind of the Dark Ages. You had then the Renaissance coming out of all of that, and the the printing press, and all of that, and that's where you had you know, some of those abuses then that Martin Luther was reacting against. So the Protestant Reformation was uniquely a product and reaction to the Latin Western church. In the East, there was no Reformation. That was the full flowering of the Byzantine Empire. Whereas in the West, it was, you know, kind of out of the Dark Ages than the Renaissance. So you didn't have the same abuses and same issues yeah. You know, in the East that you had in the West. Um, Is it possible to say what you're more similar to when it comes to mm-hmm. Protestantism and Catholicism? Um, you know, we're probably closer to Catholicism in, in terms of the outward forms. Right. You know, because we, we come from a very similar liturgical and ancient church tradition. Um, but you know, I would say in our spiritual life, we're, I, I guess for us, the theme for our salvation is more understood in hospital language. Yeah. You know, Christ is our divine physician, sin as our sickness. That's how we speak of salvation. We're not in a courtroom. We're not, it's not overly legal like, like it is uh, in some places in the West. Yeah. You know, so, I would say in our outward forms, it would be similar to Catholicism, but it's yeah. in some ways it's kind of a third option. It's kind of like there's A versus B over here in the West. And then there's kind of, yeah. well, have you considered C? It's right. just kind of its own. It's uh, three. It's yeah. three. Now it doesn't, it just, just the, you know, I know this is the, just the tip of the iceberg. It's, it's the, the summary and the history. I mean, job well done a plus um but like it's, i think our work is done here yeah our work is done. <laughs> let's go chris let's get to that next podcast real quick all right <laughs> it's it's the it's the tip of the iceberg and um so when you reflect on when when you look at uh america evangelicalism and and those sorts of things there's a lot of people breaking away now from evangelicalism because they're just like, wait a second, things can't be this black and white. Uh, then, you know, they point to a, a lot of the hypocrisy and they're like, I can't be a part of this. And, um, you know, from, from this thing to the next. And so there's a lot of people that are hanging on to Christianity because they acknowledge mystery and mystery is becoming a, a big terminology. And, and for me too, because I, you know, I, I said at the beginning of the episode, just how cookie cutter of a faith I was brought up into. And as I got older, I was like, wait a second, some of this just, just can't be right. And so I'm starting to understand that my gosh, if, if, if we are following an infinite God right there, the beginning, there's some senselessness to that. I don't understand that. I don't understand how, anything can always exist. So I see myself as a starting point mystery. You guys, just the tip of the iceberg, it sounds like there's, there's more assurance, tradition, 
we we got this thing kind of on lockdown and that's not a knock um well what, what sort of role does mystery play in in y'all's faith and y'all i mean i i think that's more what, than you know <laughs> i think that's what drew me to orthodoxy i mean yeah. i like i said being raised evangelical i knew nothing of of the orthodox church in fact i i spent i went on two mission trips to soviet russia <laughs> you know to convert those you know godless atheists yeah come to find out they've been christian for a thousand years right <laughs> long before north american evangelical christianity um i think i was just at a at a point in my life where I too was becoming very disillusioned with kind of the, the modern, what I call the evangelical experiment, because yeah. I was raised very low church, uh, kind of Bible church, evangelical, not even mainline Protestant. I, I really like to kind of differentiate between those two evangelicalism as we know it today was really a product of, you know, kind of the, the sixties yeah. and the early seventies. And, um, which was kind of, a get rid of all the traditions. We're just going to do something new. Um, you know, so I going to a Bible college, you know, I, I was just feeling like I was starving, right. I was starving for the filet mignon and all I was getting was potato chips. Yeah. The potato chips tasted great, but it just, I was longing for something more. And <clears throat> I was just getting very cynical, bitter, you know, certainly with luxury at the time, you know, playing some of those Christian venues we just felt so awkward like i'm just not a part of this anymore yeah but i didn't know where to go yeah because to leave the church would be to like leave my faith and oh, my yeah. beat wasn't so much with god as it was i just feel like i didn't have a a spiritual life that had depth so there was a group of us there was about 35 or 40 of us that kind of made this journey together at this little really how'd that happen yeah we uh we just started kind of reading the early church fathers, like what were the disciples of the disciples? What did they believe about, you know, scripture? How did they worship? How did, you know, they think of church order and 35 people though. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. So we found out about a group uh, called the evangelical Orthodox church, and they were basically a group of Protestants that kind of left campus crusade in the seventies and kind of were on a similar journey. And they found themselves just completely taken by Eastern Christianity. Yeah, just in their reading, because this Orthodox Church kept coming up in in the readings and discussions, and we're like, "What is that?" Yeah. Um, so we we were kind of uh, catechized by them for a period of time. Uh, make a long story short, you know, about like I said, thirty five or forty of us just found that the more we read about Eastern Christianity, the more we understood the history of the church, um, how. The Orthodox Church did worship. It's kind of orthopraxy. It's a way of living. Like this is meat. Yeah. This is a deep well. Um, and so just on on multiple levels, both kind of theological, intellectual, but even, you know, the mystical, the the beauty of the worship. It wasn't like this big rock and roll worship circus. It was this, I can go and fall back into the arms of the church and enter into this stream, this liturgy which we believe is the liturgy that's going on around the throne of, of God. We enter into that worship every Sunday, God descends and we ascend and it's just, and then a rich spiritual life, you know, a lot of um, writings from the, from the church fathers, from some of the monastic saints 
from the first millennia, you know, wrote a lot about, you know, struggle with the passions, about, you know, what does it mean to, to live an authentic Christian life? I mean, these were things that I was just not getting in my evangelical experience. And so I, I would say I was on my way out of the door of the, of the church. Because, um, you know, so many people in that kind of 90s Christian underground world, you know, have since just left Christianity altogether. And I, I didn't want to do that, but yeah. I didn't know where to go until I found you know, kind of the richness of the, the Orthodox experience. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. So, <laughs> and then becoming a priest. I mean, if someone would have told me that 27 years ago or 30 years ago, I would have looked at them like they had, you know, 42 heads or something. <laughs> All right. Is, well, that a, is that a, 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 is that in the revelation? 42? Yeah. Oh, yes. 42. 42. That's pretty specific yeah. there. Yeah. Isn't it? I, so I want to piggyback on that and point out because it, the question you were asking was about mystery and there's a theological tradition within orthodoxy that distinguishes between um, cataphatic and apophatic theology. Uh, cataphatic is, is the positive, the, the via positiva or the positive way. And, um, and apophatic is, is the negative way. And so, the idea here, the way that I know it best is through uh, a guy called, sometimes called Pseudo-Dionysius, and sometimes called Dionysius, the Pseudo-Areopagite. He was meant to be the this guy named Dionysius who converted to Christianity after hearing uh, the Apostle Paul uh, preach at the Areopagus, uh, which is mentioned in, in the Book of Acts. Uh, in all likelihood, he was an 8th century Syrian monk, but he distinguishes between these two paths. And, and so it's all, it's all sort of gesturing toward mystery. And so the question is, is this, like when we make a theological statement, what kind of a statement is that? Yeah. So when we say um, uh, God is Lord, he, so he wrote a book called The Divine Names uh, and another one called Mystical Theology. And uh, or I, I guess book is a, 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 an anachronism, but, work. And um, so in the divine names, he's talking about these different ways that the different ways that we use language to describe God and language by definition is a limiting thing, right? Right. It's, it, it places a limits on the things that you're talking about. It doesn't mean it limits that thing you're talking about. Of course, it just means that it, it sets borders, literally defines that, that you're talking about this thing and not that thing. So when we say that God is Lord, God is King, God is like all of these sort of descriptors, God is a shepherd. We cannot, unless we're crazy, we cannot think that that um, a Lord, a King, and a shepherd are the same thing, right? Those are in themselves are, are in tension with one another. So it must mean that insofar as our relationship is, is like this, in this area of life with God, it's like a King. Or in this way, it's like Lord, and in this way, it's like shepherd, and in this way, it's like father, and, and so on. But, but his point is that every time you make one of these statements about God, you also have to, to deny it. You also have to reject it. You can say, God is king, and yet God is not king. God is Lord, and yet God is not Lord. But not because he's less than Lord, but because he's more than Lord. He's super gotcha. Lord. He's super oh, yeah. beyond our, all of these things. Our understanding of what Lord is 
has yeah. probably even fallen. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and honestly, I mean, and, and I, I'm still on, I, I reckon I always will be until I die. I'm still on this journey of not knowing and figuring stuff out and questions and all that. And I think what trips me up about tradition, no matter how you slice it, you know, a Catholic tradition, uh, evangelical tra- tradition is people have been traditionally wrong so many times. It, still seems like it's an act of faith. So, um, you know, I think one of the, one of the biggest questions that got me off the evangelical train, even though I would still consider myself evangelical because that's the, the, the folks that I rub shoulders with. But the big question was who, who is telling me to read the Bible inerrantly and infallibly, infallibly? Like, you know, if you want to use Paul's uh, teaching to Timothy that all scriptures God breathed, like one of y'all even said, you know, the canon wasn't even closed at that point in time. Jesus certainly mentioned, you know, the 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 prophets and the law law and the prophets, but that doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, decide each and every book of the Old Testament. So it's just like. And so I, I read a book by F.F. F. Bruce called The Canon of Scripture. And I, I promise you, I mean, it's hilarious. I really thought, because I did some research and I was like, what's the best book on this? And I thought at the end, a light bulb would go off and I'd be, be like, that is, that's how the Bible came together. Now it makes sense. And the Holy Spirit did it and God did it. And this, the, and I get to the end of the book. I'm like, dadgummit, it's, it's tradition. It's like a bunch of uh, fallible men getting together and, and figuring stuff out. You guys take solace in that. Like y'all that, that, that brings about a, a good bit of peace. It seems like to you guys. And and for me, it's like, man, we've, people have messed stuff up so much. Tradition's a tough one for me to lean on. Not now it's not something that I'm comfortable eliminating altogether, but I wish I could lean on it more like you guys. What you, well, what, you don't, what you don't like about it in part is that it's an argument from authority. And that's like, some people even refer to arguments from authority as being like a logical fallacy. Mm-hmm. Um, but almost everything you believe, almost everything you believe that's not a like a priori truth is some form of logical, is some sort of a um, argument from authority. You believe that there was such a person as Napoleon Right. Because somebody told you that that was so. Well, like, for example, for example, traditionally, s- slavery was seen in a, and, and, and I know we're, we're talking a, a different type of slavery, but still, I mean, there's the passage in the book of Judges where it was basically um, encouraged to go steal those women dancing, take them as, as your wives. And so, and, and that seemed to be something that God ordained. So it's just like, looking at stuff like that and seeing tradition in, in the light of what I'm actually reading, you know, in the old Testament and in, you know, in the, in the new Testament, it's just, it's, that's, those are tougher sales. Yeah. I think tradition, I mean, we all have a tradition. We all have a sieve that we interpret things to, you know, the scripture is not a self-interpreting book, right? You know, we bring our first principles to it. So really that is the question. Like, what are your first principles when you approach the scripture? Right. Um, and so, I mean, part of what bothered me within evangelicalism is that 
you know, being so strong on Sola Scriptura, I mean, I felt like, man, it's up to me and the Holy Spirit to figure all of this out. And who do I go to? Well, I can go to all of these scholars. I had all of these professors at my Bible college who all had <clears throat> PhDs and were very knowledgeable. Yeah. But they didn't even have a consensus of right. you know, inter- interpretation of Scripture. So, you know, for me, it was like, well, was there a time in the history of the church where there was at least some emerging consensus. Right. And so, you know, the way we think of holy tradition as Orthodox is, you know, we think of holy tradition as scripture rightly interpreted, that holy tradition is anything that reveals the fullness of the gospel to us. So certainly before the uh, canonical scripture was closed, what did they do in the second century to, preach against certain heresies. Well, all they had to go on was this oral tradition of these eyewitnesses that saw and bore witness to a Christ who was fully God and fully man, who went to his voluntary passion, who was seen by eyewitnesses, his resurrection. So anything that correctly brings that to us as part of holy tradition. So holy scripture then is the highest form it is kind of par excellence, the holy tradition. But we would say, so is church architecture. So is the lives of the saints, the, the, the findings of the seven ecumenical councils, anything that correctly kind of reveals that fullness of the gospel to us. So explaining it that way, then, inerrancy really is not high on the totem pole with you guys. Not not in the sense of how that gets defined today. I mean, yeah. we certainly have a, a high, very high view of Scripture, and it is authoritative, and, you know, it is God communicating to us. But it's also not kind of Quranic, like the Quran that just fell from heaven and, like, you know, here it is. Like, you know, it is the church's book, and it is read liturgically. It has a certain context. It's, it's a living, breathing uh, part of our holy tradition that— you know, the church presents to us kind of the right reading of, of the one scripture. Not you, I think that my, my own perspective is when approaching scripture, my default position is that it's right and I'm not. Yeah. Um, and uh, that I don't stand in judgment, but it rather stands in judgment of me. And, um, and if I'm wrong about that, if, if um, you know, if I'm wrong about one of these details, I have faith that God will be merciful that, you know, in the end of things that, that there's, that salvation is not determined by your particular view on a passage in judges. Like that's yeah. not, that's just sort of a, not really. And nor I mean, you know, like the, the creed itself, if you look at the Nicene creed, it doesn't like, it doesn't actually take a view about a lot of things. Like it's, yeah. uh, it it sort of distills the things that that are most critical in terms of actual beliefs yeah not in terms of like how you live your life and like and you the uh, pursuit of a relationship of god or being open to his pursuit of you or whatever it is that's well beyond what can be stated in a creed but in terms of the actual like here are the things that we think that really define who we are. Uh, scripture is not really a part of that, and, and nor could it be because the 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 Bible as such did not exist when, even though again 
like when they like your description of, of you know it's just these dudes hanging out deciding which is which no it's not really like that it was yeah. like this long period of time where where um where the prayerful, books were prayerful were, contemplation yeah. prayerful contemplation and the books were found to be sort of pulsating with with um uh with god in effect um and that was discovered over time and not necessarily and so it was really like the way to look at the canonization process or the or when it was established as canon is like that's in a way the least important moment in it all because they were they were just sort of saying okay what we've arrived at that's what we're we're ratifying yeah. that thing it was and, all the work that came before it that was the more important stuff yeah and and i and i'm comfortable with your default position as far as you know the bible i i I guess i'll I'll say lording over you instead of you lording over the bible if people were more humble with their lack of ability to interpret correctly like i i think and i mean you guys know traditionally evangelicals i mean we we read one verse and completely out of context and we'll make a whole sermon series on it. And the whole, the whole thing is wrong. You know what I'm saying? Whereas I just, it just, well, it can become a free for all. You can make it say whatever you want it to say. And either, either way you want to do it. Like a moment ago when you named what that passage in judges, as if that somehow expresses the entirety of the view of freedom of scripture. And I don't think that's the case at all. Like, I think that that would be the anomaly that you'd have to wrestle with and try to understand like what's, what's meant by that? What is God, what's God's intentions? Whereas the rest of scripture seems to be like in concert um, uh, in a way that proclaims the, the free, the um, sort of sovereignty of each person in a way, like in, in, um, I don't know if sovereignty is the way to put that, but in any event that we're all creating the image of God. And of course that, you know, like chattel slavery of the, you know, of the early American period is wasn't, I don't think really envisioned uh, in those days. Now would, and and I promise I I'm, I'm not trying to trap you guys. I'm trying to understand. And this is, no, it's a great, great learning experience for me. If you take the Bible, like, you know, the culture back in, in that day was very um, masculine oriented. Um, Women were not, really seen in, in high regard. Jesus kind of changed that a little bit with how he carried out his life. But that right there, it seems like if we were to treat the Bible as authoritatively in the way that you guys are saying, wouldn't women be seen or needing to be treated as lesser than here today in 2019? That's not the way I read scripture, but... okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, like we can, I mean, we could talk about that endlessly, but the, I mean, certainly in like what the, the image that is revealed of women in scripture, if you just take the New Testament in particular, the first Christian undeniably was Mary. Right. right? And the, and in one sense, and then in a different sense in terms of the, of, of, um, of Christian having what Christian means having to do with 
being an eyewitness of the resurrection, well, Christ revealed himself to women first. Yeah. They were the first ones to proclaim the gospel. Well, the and they were the ones that remained faithful after the disciples scattered. Yeah. That to me is the picture that emerges in That's the New possible. Testament. There, yeah. I mean, there, there are things that run in contrast to that, some of Paul's teachings. But Paul, by the way, like also said, there's neither male nor female. So you've got to, like, like, I wish that Paul was right here and we could say, hey, what did you mean by this? And what did you mean by that? Like, how do we understand those things in contrast with one another and in tension with, with each other? But yeah. I don't think that Paul was crazy. Like, I think that he wrote both of those things. And I think that it's up to us to try to understand or it's up to the church. I mean, it would be the way that the Orthodox would put it is that it's up to the church to understand like what is meant by that. And can you hold a, a point of view that affirms the absolute value and equality of women on one hand uh, and, and then understands maybe different roles on the other hand. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Well, let, would, me, yeah. let me throw one more curveball on scripture and then I've got a, a, a few um, bullet points of very general theological doctrines that I'd love for you guys to speak on and, and how, and how you guys view it. And then, then we'll be done here. But in numbers uh, five, 11 through 31, um, there seems to be uh, uh, almost a, um, in, in it's, it, it seems as if abortions being condoned. Um, uh, let's see. I don't want to read the whole thing, but basically, so in verse 27, uh, it's, it's basically talking about an unfaithful wife. If she has made herself impure and been unfaithful to her husband, this will be the result. When she is made to drink the water that brings a curse and causes bitter suffering, it will enter her, her abdomen will swell, and her womb will miscarry, and she will become a curse. Like, how do you make sense of that? Like, it's, it's those sorts of things that I read, and I'm like, maybe those people didn't hear right from God. <laughs> <laughs> well it's funny i mean we just we don't read scripture in in this way where we i don't know kind of cherry pick a section and then try yeah. to build kind of a whole kind of theology about it you know we kind of look at this bigger picture you know what is the the consensus that he that emerged within the church based on the teachings of the gospel the under self-understanding of the church again, seeming good to us in the Holy Spirit. And then what has been the kind of the collective wisdom throughout, you know, 2000 years of Christianity. And, you know, so, you know, in terms of abortion as being, you know, the taking of a human life, I mean, that's where we would kind of step back from it all. And that we understand that, you know, life does begin at, you know, some a conception, just like when Mary said yes to the angel at that moment, Christ became incarnate in her womb, uh, not partially incarnate. <laughs> you know, he was fully God and fully man. And so there's kind of this general witness from the tradition that flows out from that. Yeah. Um, rather than kind of taking one little verse and trying to extrapolate that and how do we understand that? Because even the Old Testament you know, I think in the early church, the early church began to um, kind of preach Christ according to the scriptures. I mean, St. Paul talks about that. Um, well, the scriptures at that time were the Old Testament. And so the, the church started using the Old Testament and, and using a lot of typology and trying to understand that 
you know, how we as moderns and postmoderns understand history, we think of it as this videotape play-by-play of events. Whereas I think for, you know, the pre-modern man and the church at that time, you know, it would kind of play kind of fast and loose with all the, all the typology and, you know, what is kind of the meaning behind, um, you know, maybe kind of the literal sense of this story. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, not to kind of challenge your question, but I guess from the oh, Orthodox perspective, like it would be hard to kind of base a whole argument just on kind of one kind of little section. And what does this mean that, you know, we got it wrong. Right. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, and and that that is that's not to debunk what you guys are saying as much as it's to help me understand or 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 to explain to you guys why the tradition thing trips me up. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, the, I mean, the, the actual tradition, as far as that goes, is that the early church, like from a very very early point, were like Christians were known as being people who were opposed to abortion. Like that was from a very ancient time. Well, it seems like that's unbiblical then, according to that, right? I mean, no, no, but see, that's what we're saying is that like cherry picking that one particular thing. So like, it depends on what you understand scripture to, to be and, and what it's doing. There are different genres of and for the record, I think how y'all view scripture is what I'm hungry for. So okay. it sounds like I'm challenging it, but yeah, yeah I, no, I get it. I get no, it. You're no. you're thinking it out. You're thinking out loud. Right. Right. So um, I think that um, that there are different genres of literature within scripture, and there are those who say, you know, that they believe um, they believe in scripture literally, like that they believe that it's literally true. Yeah, and and I don't think that if they thought for a second that they would say that they would actually affirm that, or, I mean, I think that they mean a certain thing, but they're, cause like, if you challenge them at all, they would just say, Oh, well, no, of course I don't mean that. But, <laughs> oh, what do you mean? So, so like, if you say, well, do you think you thought Christ was literally a door? You think he was literally a vine? How could both of those be true? Right. And, and they would say, well, no, don't be dumb. Of course I don't think that, but, but you have to like, sort of interrogate like all of it along those lines. Well, what, first of all, what's the genre of literature? Who's the audience? Like all these things that you, that you ask in a sort of basic literature course, but scripture in general, like where it means to be literal and where it, where it means to be normative, it's often very clear about that. Where it yeah. means to be metaphorical, it's often very clear about that. There are some things uh, where like, like with the passage you're talking about, well, it seems to be pretty literal. Like it doesn't seem to be like, it's not that it's, that it's poetry or something. Well, can we ask what the, who the audience is right. and, and what that context is that would lead to that sort of perspective. And some of that may be lost to history. I think what we can't say is that that passage is therefore normative because there's so much, so much of the rest of the scripture seems to speak against taking yeah. of, of innocent life regardless so um so you have to to in some sense judge the bible against the bible like if you have these sort of and you know that like whenever somebody says oh well, what about deuteronomy where what about numbers where like it's always this kind of thing you were just like, mocking me man you were just uh, like <laughs> was i was i <laughs> um, that's a spiritual gift is uh, mockery. Uh, so 
but people will do this, but like will not also pick up the 20 places where it affirms the value of yeah. life or affirms the value. Like, you know what I mean? And, so, and that's where I think that's, that's when I start to think we, we have a responsibility to when we read the Bible, maybe I shouldn't use the word judge, but it seems like we have to be a judge of, of what we're reading. And, and, and I don't even mean that as us being superior over the Bible, but recognizing we got stuff to figure out here because this thing says this and that's, that seems pretty out of place. And so, you know, when I hear you say, you know, I want the Bible to, I want to always assume that it's right. Like that's how I was always brought up, but it doesn't, that doesn't seem to work. Like it seems like we have a responsibility to figure out how this puzzle comes together or at least to acknowledge when we have no idea what we're talking about when we talk about this passage or that passage. Well, there are a couple of thousand years of other people having addressed these things. So you're not, <laughs> yeah. like, you're, you're not like, you're really reinventing a wheel when you approach it in that way. Even, the, yeah. even, even in the Protestant tradition, like in the tradition right after Luther, there was like this guy named Jakob Spanner who wrote the Pia Desideria. And in that, he invents Bible studies. By the way, like, that'd be a, a cool rap name. What's his name again? <laughs> who, Jakob Spanner? Yeah. Or, or Pia Desideria. Come on, I'm Jakob Spanner. <laughs> Lil, Lil Jakob Spanner. <laughs> so this guy, he like invents Bible studies. Like that's what he invented. And like the, the idea of like a Bible study outside of church didn't exist until this guy, which was like in the, I guess, 1500s, thereabouts, he was a pietist, a German pietist. But even he said, no, you're not going to go in there and do your Bible, little Bible studies, not just like, like five of you neighbors getting together. There needs to be a trained, like a trained minister involved in this who yeah. has theological training and is able to say, oh, by the way, what y'all are reading as, you know, as history is actually poetry. What you're reading as, you know, as poetry is actual, you know, is actually, uh, you know, uh, whatever, apocalyptic yeah. literature, yeah. whatever it may be. So if you, if you take, for example, the, the Gospels, which are so central, if you take a look at the Gospels and say, well, I believe every word of that is literal. Well, no, you don't. Like when you look at, at, at uh, Jesus's parables, no one assumes that those parables are required to be historically true. Right. And we know that in part because he gives no uh, geographic nor historical context for his stories, right? With, with the broader story of the gospel or of the gospels, you have, you specifically have geographic and historic context given. Like these guys thought they were writing history. They did not think that they were writing a fairy tale. They didn't think they were writing myth. Right. Like the, the, the gospel writer, Luke, for example, I'm writing you this most excellent Theophilus so that you may have certainty of the things that you've been taught. Like he thought that he was telling the absolute historical truth because he had looked into it, done lots of research and had spoken to the eyewitnesses. And here's what he came out with. And, yeah. and, and, and one of the ways that you know it is because like the genre of literature, there's just that there's such a shift when, when it says, okay, then Jesus walked from this town to that town. And then he says, once upon a time, there was a guy who lived, or it doesn't even say where he lived. Once upon a time, there's a man with three sons or whatever it is. 
man with two sons, here's what happened. Like there's no context there. We can right. assume pretty fairly that that's, that that's not meant to be literally historically true. Yeah. But then, but it's within that. Like, how could you say, well, therefore it's all that. No, you can, there's a clear distinction between the two forms of literature that you're saying. Right. And so that, I think that, that, um, that when you sort of pull things out as Protestants are inclined to do, when you pull things out of context, that's a danger that you get into is that you're not seeing what's the passage before that Romans or the, the um, numbers passage that you're like, you know what I mean? What's right. the whole context of it? Right. I'm not asking, I'm not like trying to put you on the spot, but like, <laughs> no, well, I, I was going to come up with something. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> but, I was going to make but, something up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's not, right. it's not, well, uh, not always obvious. Yeah, yeah. The other thing I would say, the other danger, I mean, I, I agree with you that, you know, it's important to, you know, kind of read and engage the scriptures and, you know, that's important for each person to do. But I think part of that engaging the scripture is also be willing to engage one's own. Wow. I might be bringing a lot of presuppositions to this text. Oh yeah, for sure. And I need to be aware of that. And that's kind of, I mean, even in academia right now across the board, not just in theology, uh, but it's also in literature. I mean, there's this whole like rereading of everything through the sieve of kind of a current kind of pet issue. Yeah. Um, and so I, I just think we really need to be aware of that. And that was some of my frustration and with some of the, you know, kind of evangelical world that I was in. And again, going to these Bible studies, it just kind of turned into. A I'm bringing bad memories, bringing bad. It is. It's like I'm, 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 I'm going to suck my thumb and sit in the corner over here. But it just, it turned into just, you know, by what authority does anybody have any can say this is a proper translation or a, a proper interpretation of this passage? I mean, so that kind of begs that deeper question. By yep. what authority can anyone say anything definitive about Scripture? I mean, that's really kind of that deeper question. Yeah, that, that you got me there. And if that, it's I mean, just that, me, that sucks me, I in. don't, I don't trust myself to right. be smart enough to Chris isn't even right about a cream of wheat box. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what that means either. But, uh, <laughs> I've All seen right. him try to interpret it before. No, I haven't. Not really. <laughs> All right. So um, we can probably even do this in like five to 10 minutes. So um, some of these will just be yes or no, but uh, just uh, lightning, lightning round. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. So, uh, Jesus, Just Orthodox aren't big on yes or no. Like, <laughs> quick, you guys. Do you guys line up with Protestants when it comes to the Trinity and Jesus being fully man and fully God? Absolutely. The right, Protestants line up. The Protestants line up with the Orthodox. So yeah, so that's what that Touche, touche. All right, the afterlife and salvation. Do you guys believe traditionally that most people are going to burn forever, and then those who, you know, Jesus found or found Jesus or however you want to say it, you know, the straight and narrow path. There's only a few. Like, how do you guys see heaven and hell, and <laughs> and and where most people are going to end up? That's a long answer too, but um, kind of the orthodox teaching on that. I mean, there certainly is heaven and hell spoken of, but uh, we have this idea of kind of heaven and hell being kind of the the same place, if you call it place. It's that experience of the river of fire, 
of God. And so it depends on, do we experience that love of God as, you know, to be in his presence is this love and joy and, you know, the bliss of heaven or to be in the presence of somebody we hate is a torture worse than any hell. That's what St. Ephraim the Syrian says. Um, and so this idea of heaven is up and hell is down as a two-tiered universe really isn't present in kind of the, the Eastern Christian understanding. We see it as kind of a one-tiered experience of God, and it depends on ourselves how we experience that, that love can, of God. Can, so once someone dies, though, can they change from that bitterness to joy and acceptance? I would say the end, all is finally revealed of what we've been kind of choosing our whole life. Yeah. And so maybe at that period of seeing Christ for the first time, maybe this person had never kind of come to belief in Christ, but maybe they've, they've borne witness to the kind of the cross in their own life and to, to buy, finally behold Christ. I mean, it's just kind of a mystery. We, yeah. you know, we don't know necessarily, but someone can eternally choose to reject that. Is there room for hopeful universalism in y'all's? Um, that is what we call a theologumena. <laughs> There's a theological opinion. I would say that the, the church generally says that um, at some point there no longer remains the possibility, but we can certainly hope and pray for it. Yeah, gotcha. That's probably as definitive as we can get. Gotcha. All right. What is sacred here on this earth right now in 2019? What is sacred? What is sacred? Well, in a sense, like I, Richard I, Rohr would say everything's sacred. I yeah. I mean, that would be my first answer because, you know, as Orthodox, we take very literally the incarnation yeah. of Christ. He really became incarnate. And because of that, that means all of creation is teeming with the possibility of the sacred. And then our job as humanity is to take all of that matter and offer it up kind of as our priesthood of all believers. And by offering it up with thanksgiving and praise and gratitude, that's when it gets kind of uh, returned to us as something life-giving. And we see the sacredness that is already there, but we have to be involved kind of in the process to kind of name it. Yeah. As sacred, so we don't buy into kind of this dichotomy, per se, of kind of like the sacred versus secular or sacred. You know, um, how do you view your personal sin? Like, is it is it something that should sadden you? Is it something that should scare you? Is it something that you should just assume and and try better next time? Like your <laughs> personal sin. How do you view that? Yeah. Well, again, like I said earlier, you know, the, the model, uh, the metaphor for us in terms of salvation and sin is again, more in this hospital language. Yeah. Um, so sin is less the violation of some kind of moral code as it is kind of ontological suicide. I mean, we're, we're ceasing, you know, sin literally means in the Greek to miss the mark. Yeah. And so, when we sin, it's a tragedy. We're, we're, we're choosing to be less than what we are created to be. And so sin is tragic in the sense of, you know, we're choosing to reject that which is best for us. Yeah. 
Um, so sin should be mourned and struggled against, but not because it's the angry God kind of, you know, mad at us and we should feel shame and, you know, it should just be a godly repentance that we want to return to life because that, that is our true self. Now it's got, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, just, you know, we are creating the image and likeness of God. So that is our true self. Christ yeah. is our true identity. So when we get caught in sin, we're, we're kind of ceasing to be alive. We're, we're trying to kind of commune with something that's dead that can't give us life. Yeah. Now, um, is, is God angry at sin of those who do not worship him? Is there anger there? I don't, I don't think, I mean, I think scripture kind of speaks of God as angry sometimes, but it's kind of an anthropomorphizing of kind of reflecting our earthly anger onto him. I, I think more that he's, he's saddened yeah. by like his desires that all, you know, come to a knowledge of him and have communion with him because that is true life. And so I think it's more of a sadness. He's, he's so he was sad. So he sent fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> Uh, I'm more with you. Uh, that was that was a joke. That was a joke. All right. So Satan and demons are are is there a literal uh, team of of evil spirits that are warring against humanity? Yeah, I, I see about four around you. Right <laughs> oh shoot! They're all wearing the, they're all wearing the same jersey. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we believe that there is an evil one, and uh, you know who has has turned from kind of his original plan and yeah. um we we speak of that as real but we also don't kind of look for demons behind every little thing and right. you know have this power encounter where we were casting out demons and having conversations with them you know in much of the old spiritual literature from like the desert fathers like in the fourth century they talked a lot about demons but I think in some ways that's kind of a spiritual literature that's just our passions, yeah. the, the sins that we kind of struggle with incessantly. They would almost use synonymous with like the demons. Yeah. And so we don't get caught up on, you know, I don't know, like, do we got to find these demons? We just need to fight against our, our passions. And, yeah. you know, the demonic Israel, we, we, in my pre-service book, we do have a, a prayer service for exorcism. Um, yeah, but it's not like Hollywood. It's not. Yeah, totally. Um, All right, uh, about three more. So prayer. What What is the primary goal of prayer? Like, do you guys believe in interceding um, in order to move God's hand for or against someone or something or a country or you name it? Yeah, I mean, we believe in intercession. We believe prayer is 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 really the center of our life. Really, is to kind of this pray without ceasing, where it almost becomes just an attitude. You know, prayer ultimately is communion with God. So, if we're in communion with God, we're going to ask for His, you know, intervention. We're going to ask for for healing for people. We're going to pray for certain you know situations, and so we we desperately pray. But we also by by praying, we're just, you know, turning it into the hands of God and, yeah. you know, but prayer is pretty central to kind of the Orthodox way of life. We have a daily rule of prayer that we keep. 
Um, yeah. Liturgical prayer is very important. And we use a lot of, you know, written prayers, um, you know, that the church has, has kind of marinated in the, the life of the church for years. Yeah. Um, and then we have a tradition of like lighting candles. And that's kind of like a yeah. physical expression of that prayer. So you know, we, we do that at our church. And that oh, crazy. Wow. Yeah, crazy. evangelicals are into some of these stuff. Man, candles. Oh, it freaked people out too. That our church started doing it about a decade ago, and I mean, immediately people were like, "What are we lighting candles for the dead? Or what's going on here?" <laughs> uh, how about evangelism? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess probably the easiest way to define an Orthodox evangelism is come and see. Yeah, um, it doesn't mean that we don't get on podcasts and talk about it or <laughs> something right. like that. But it's much more, there's such a respect for the human person and the respect of, you know, free will that God has given us. So we're simply, you know, come and see, come and participate in this. Um, we believe that, you know, you'll find something life-giving here, but you don't see many Orthodox kind of passing out tracks and kind of going out and trying to proselytize. Yeah. Um, but I mean, definitely, I mean, one of our bishops in Albania says, you know, a church without mission or evangelism is a denial of its very nature. So there is this ecstatic, we're excited. So just like the first apostles, you know, yeah. come and see. Yeah, um, absolutely. All right. And last but not least, um, what's your view, knowing what you know of how you've, evangelicals view the rapture what would you say towards that view you know those scary 70s movies and oh man those scared the hell out of me me too man literally literally yeah. <laughs> um yeah you know i'm sure matt could speak to this too but i mean the whole notion of rapture as it's promulgated in some evangelical places is i mean it's less than 150 years old yeah in the history of the church, that was never an understanding or, you know, the point of, you know, revelation and all of that literature is, are we ready at any moment? I mean, that's the point. It's not to try to kind of figure all that stuff out. And this idea of kind of a rapture and a thousand year reign. And, you know, I'm going to start singing Larry Norman here in a minute. <laughs> that's all like, I think a lot of that was like the Schofield study Bible or something like that. Yeah, was like yeah. Where Darby, a lot of that stuff was, uh, say again? Yeah, Darby was the, the yeah. guy who first promulgated it. But yeah, yeah. That, that Schofield Bible, I guess, popularized it. And then the rise of dispensationalism, um, you know, is really where that came into full flower. And then those movies and then what the Left Behind series. And I mean, I grew up, you know, that was gospel. That was, right. Oh yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, but you know, the word rapture is not in scripture. If you right. want to start quoting little scripture passages. It, right. it is on a Blondie record though. So <laughs> that's true. <laughs> well guys, I really do appreciate this. I know we, we I took up a lot of y'all's time, but it was much. Oh, this is fun. Very, yeah. very fun indeed. So thank y'all so much. So okay. you guys, you know, we talked about this right at the beginning. Uh, y'all are in a band that's been around since, I guess, the mid 90s and quite early a, 90s. yeah, early 90s, quite a story, including uh, a car wreck that almost took y'all's lives, I think, on the way to Cornerstone, uh, including you guys going from, or, or I, I don't know about you guys, but definitely Chris 
being an evangelical and now uh, a priest in Eastern Orthodoxy. Quite a story. I'm sure there's a lot more uh, to it, but there's actually a movie that uh, has been produced on basically on y'all's lives, the life of the band. I mean, uh, does, what, what's the movie about and how can people find out whether or not they have access to a theater near them? Uh, so, um, so I'm actually the director of that movie, um, called Parallel Love. And, um, yeah, it's about, it's sort of the story of the band and the twists and turns that, uh, that, uh, uh, have occurred, uh, leading up to the making of our most recent record trophies. Um, uh, the first record where we've had three members of the band that are Eastern Orthodox priests. So, um, yeah, people can follow us on a Facebook uh, page or on the website, which is parallel-love.com. Uh, there are screenings coming up in, in Tennessee, North Carolina, uh, Michigan, uh, and other places. It's been, it's, um, it's sort of traveled all around the country. And uh, hopefully we'll be looking towards sort of some sort of a streaming situation before too long. For sure. Awesome. Well, congrats on that. That's a big accomplishment. Thank you. Yep. Well, thank you guys again. Just what you were told